All right, so as you're having a seat, you'll notice that I am joined up here by Ariana Salee, and she has an unnamed helper here who's going to hold the microphone for her. A couple of Sundays ago, we prayed for our elementary kids that were heading off to camp, and Ariana is one of those who headed off, and most of them came back, right? I think most of them came back. So I'm going to ask her a couple of quick questions so you get the report from camp. This is good stuff. So Ariana, I guess the first question would be, You've been to camp before. How did you like this one? Was it different from the last or pretty much the same? It was kind of different. It was in a different location this time. We do that every couple of years to throw you guys off. We don't want you to know where we're taking you because then, you know, if we leave you, you'll find your way home. So, okay. And so tell us what a track is and like what were some of the tracks that you chose? Well, a track is something you do almost every day except for the day you come and the day you leave. There are two tracks now, track A and track B. Okay. And I chose Splish Splash for track A. Nice. Which is games in the pool. And Art Studio for track B. That sounds like a lot of fun. Art seems right up your alley knowing some of your interest. And so, did you learn anything? Was there anything when you came back from camp you thought, yes, I'm going to do that because that's what the camp preacher challenged me to or maybe one of your leaders said something to you? So, I wanted to read my Bible more afterward. Okay. But when you get home, you get back and all the craziness and you don't have like a schedule or anything. Yeah. yeah. And then you would just forget. Yep. This is true. This is a challenge for grown-ups who don't even go to camp. Absolutely. So, all right. Well, thank you. I'm going to hold on to this while you look up 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And Ariana, since uh, she wants to read her Bible more, uh, I'm, I asked her if she would read this scripture passage for us this morning, because this is going to set the stage for us as we continue our summer series in 1 Peter. So she's going to read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, this stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Thank you very much. That was a great job. Thanks, Ariana. Yeah, I appreciate that passage is 
kind of complicated, and her Bible, the print is so small, I would not be able to read it. I, I usually cheat and have, you know, like a larger print Bible, so you got to get young eyes to help out with something like that. I'm Pastor Alex. Pastor Ed is uh, out of town. He's coming back today from vacation. We'll see him next Sunday, so just pray for his transition this week, and in just a moment, we'll pray as we launch into the scripture, but I, I think it's weird to me that both of my children, who are now adults, ran cross-country in high school. So each of them, their freshman year in high school, decided they wanted to run. And about three weeks into cross country, they decided they wanted to not run. And it was brutal. And we made them, encourage them, you know, to do the whole season. They learned a lot. But weirdly, they have turned out to be runners. So my son is almost 31. And he, this is him in 2018, running about 153 in the Boston Marathon. Is that right? 153 or 253? 153? What's it? It was a sloppy race. He was obviously enjoying it. And then my daughter was there, she's a couple of years younger, and she thought, if he can do it, I can do it. So she starts running, and we got to watch her run her first half marathon last fall in Nashville. I will just point out on her behalf that she looks way more comfortable and elegant as she's running in a fetching black outfit. It was in November, and her goal is to run a marathon uh, this year. So a lot of people go like, wow, that's crazy. Where did your kids get all this running ability and everything else? And, I don't really like to make a big deal out of this, but a lot of people don't know about me that I, <clears throat> I'm all over the place. I, I run a lot of places. Here's the thing. If you're going to run a marathon, if you're going to endure, you've got to have more than good intentions. You've got to have more than a bright idea or just like, woo, I'm fast. I mean, you can be fast out of the blocks. You can get rolling and outrun everybody for the first half a mile, but you've got... 25 and a half more to go. So it's all about endurance. And this series this summer is called Endure. We're working our way through the book of 1 Peter. And Peter is writing to his listeners who are Christ followers, who are scattered all over what is now Turkey. They're from different cultures. They live in different towns. And he's trying to encourage them to endure. And so this morning, out of these verses that Ariana read, we're going to find that one of the secrets to endurance is flourishing in your faith. That's really critical. If you want to endure, then you have to flourish in your faith. You can't just be show up for the race emaciated without energy. You've got to be thriving. You've got to be at your best health. You've got to be energized and ready to give it all you have. You have to flourish. So let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you so much for the way that your word speaks to us and the way, Holy Spirit, that you stir our hearts, oftentimes in ways we do not see coming. And I'm so grateful that your power does not depend on the speaker. Your power comes because it's your word. So I ask that you would speak in spite of my inadequacy and that you would tap us on the heart each one of us, where we need to feel some prompting or urging, where we need some conviction or direction or some encouragement or hope. We give these next few minutes to you and ask for you to speak to us and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Peter, in these eight verses, he's going to start by encouraging us to flourish individually and personally, kind of like just in our own relationship with God. And then he's going to talk about flourishing collectively or corporately. So let's look at this first part. In your faith, if you're training for endurance and you want to build up strength and prepare yourself for the long road ahead, you need to know this. And he says, look, 
basically three points out of this paragraph that he wants us to get. The first one is, you've already tasted that the Lord is good. If you're getting this letter that he's sending all over Asia Minor, or if you're sitting in a church in 2019 and you're hearing somebody preach from 1 Peter chapter 2, then you've probably already tasted that the Lord is good. You've already had some personal experience. And maybe you have either seen it with your own eyes, experienced it yourself, or you've watched it happen in the lives of people around you. You may be sort of an outsider looking in, but you see it happening. So these first three verses that Ariana read for us, the first point is you've already tasted that the Lord is good. But because you have that, you've already tasted it. And the second point is crave pure spiritual milk, like newborn babies, so you can grow up into your salvation. Now, that may be kind of a weird metaphor, like act like a baby and crave pure spiritual milk. There are other places in the New Testament, especially where acting like a baby is frowned upon. So Paul says like, gosh, talking to another group of people, but he says, you guys should be chewing on serious steak right now, and you're stuck with milk because you just haven't moved on to a more mature stage in life. Peter's not talking about this at all. He's talking about craving after pure spiritual nourishment from God as a baby craves mother's milk. So an infant, when, when it comes to food, can only think about one source. You can wave a Pop-Tart in front of a baby, they don't care. You can take a triple caramel frappuccino, whatever with whipped cream on top, and they just look at it and drool. They don't know what it is. They want milk from their mother. That's the only thing that will work. So spiritual milk is the best source of nutrition. If you're growing as a follower of Jesus, you need to fuel yourself with the best high-protein source of nutrition you can get. And the natural response, once we're feeding from this pure spiritual nourishment, is to get rid of everything that would hinder us. It's like getting rid of the toxins and the impurities in our life that hold us back, the non-Christ-like attitudes and behaviors that we may still wrestle with. So we want to get rid of every form of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. So... This is the general idea that he's trying to get across to us. So even if you are not somebody who's walked with Christ for a long time, understand he's not going to rip you off. He doesn't promise one thing and then when you get close to it, he pulls the rug out from it and laughs at you. He's a good father. And so whether we've been a believer for a long time or a short time, we need to pursue him. And we need to invest everything we have in trying to learn and grow in the day-to-day -day life with him doesn't mean that we won't have challenges and trouble and calamity just because we're a follower of Christ. But when those things come up, we know that there is joy in the Lord and he is good. So we crave, we long for, we have this desire that's like just deep in our heart. Now, some of us, we have to cultivate that craving for pure spiritual food. We don't have to cultivate the craving for french fries or for something else, but this we do have to crave. And so, since we've experienced this new birth that Peter mentions in chapter 1, then it's appropriate for us to have a new kind of nourishment. And our appetite for spiritual nutrition ought to be insatiable. Not focused on junk food or some kind of quick fix or something that's enhanced with man-made additives. It's supposed to be pure. And I think that means that when we are taking in spiritual food, we need to be watchful and cautious if anything man-made is being entered into the mix, we need to pursue our relationship with Christ. 
with the purest, most God-honoring teaching and training we can find. And we want to stay as close as possible to the source of our spiritual food. If we want to grow into fully formed followers of Jesus, and if we want to develop into that rich salvation experience that God has created us for, not just salvation here and now, but salvation that's going to be more fully experienced in the life to come. So we crave pure spiritual milk. And then out of appreciation for all that God has done, out of a longing to see God work more and more in our life, we want to get rid of every form of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. A common rhetorical style in Peter's day, this was very common among Greeks, was to talk about like on the one hand and on the other hand. So Paul says, put on these things and take off these things. You know, clothe yourself in Christ, but take off the old man. So it's a common spiritual kind of analogy, take off and put on. And we, we would hear that today, maybe, uh, uh, somebody who's trying to encourage you at... Um, Costco, they're selling, you know, a Vitamix blender or something, and they're saying, you need to get rid of the processed foods in your life, and you need to take in more healthy stuff. So it's kind of on the one hand, on the other hand, and what Peter is saying here is on the one hand, you want to have pure spiritual milk coming in, but you want to get rid of everything that holds you back from being the person that God wants you to be. Get rid of all the toxins that are limiting your endurance. So five words that he gives us, malice, and deceit are two big general categories. And then there are three kind of subsets. And interestingly, in the original language, hypocrisy, envy, and slander are all plural. So it's hypocrisies, like every kind of hypocrisy. Envies, any kind of envying, and slanders, all right? So I don't know about you, but when I look at that, I look at malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, and go like, yes, that's terrible. And whenever I see somebody acting that way, I am thinking bad thoughts. I'm like, wow, you're bad, you know. Those are bad things. But it's hard for me to maybe relate to those words or to recognize them in my own life. So take a look at this slide. These are some of the forms in which malice shows up in our life. Maybe you can relate to one of these words. I'm not going to ask you to shout out your favorite, but... I feel like I could take a highlighter and go like, oh, for me, it's... And then the third column, it's... That's what malice looks like in our life. Let's take a look at deceit. Maybe make a mental note of the words you see that might apply. Let's think about hypocrisy. And then envy. And last but not least, slander. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, the older I get and the longer that I walk with Christ, the more aware I am, the, the easier it is for me to recognize where I fall short in those areas. And so even though we're supposed to be lifelong learners and hungering, craving after the pure spiritual milk that God offers, we still need to be careful and conscientious in getting rid of the stuff that holds us back. I don't know where you stand with God. If you're not sure, maybe, about your relationship with God, if you, you know, are here today and not sure what you think about the Bible or, you know, like the whole idea of Jesus having to die for me, that just, I'm not sure about that. The invitation to you is what Peter quotes here from the Psalms. He says, taste and see that God is good. You can experience it for yourself. You can watch, you can observe, you can test it for yourself. 
ask questions. Nobody's going to make you do it. For others of us, it's more about the junk food in our spiritual diet and maybe getting more comfortable and more discerning about pure spiritual food and and cultivating our cravings. So there's another major section of this passage where Peter kind of shifts and instead of talking about our flourishing individually, now let's talk about flourishing collectively. And he's going to spend quite a bit of time in his letter talking about how Christ followers are supposed to do life together. What it's supposed to be like, how we relate to each other, how we relate to Christ, how we relate to God, and what we're supposed to be doing in the world around us. And these next five verses are a really good example of that. But it's an unusual occurrence in Scripture. This is the only place in the whole Bible where Peter takes three Old Testament passages and he pulls them together and he interprets them and explains them and applies them in a way that no one else in the Bible does. No other New Testament teacher. Jesus didn't do it. And so he uses this idea of a rock or a stone over and over again, kind of changing the metaphor every time he uses it. Here's the weird thing. Remember, Peter was called Simon by his parents. It was Jesus gave him the name Peter, which means Petros or rock in Greek. And Jesus said, I'm changing your name to rock because you have said that I am the Son of God and that's the foundation I'm going to build my church on. Now, Peter doesn't explain this to his readers, but I'm sure it's in his mind, and I think they know who Peter is. Peter was one of the men that followed Jesus. And Peter really encourages me, because remember, Peter was an epic failure, right? Peter was the kind of guy that would walk into a room mouth first. I can really relate to that. He would speak, and then sometime later, maybe think, maybe. And on the night before Jesus was crucified, Peter denied Jesus three times. I mean, how heartbreaking would that have been to realize that you let down Jesus in a time of crisis, not just once, but three times. And yet, Jesus forgave him, and Jesus decided to build the early first century church around Peter's leadership. Peter was an epic failure. But God is in the business of using failures. And if you feel like failure defines you, whether we're talking about relationships or finances or about your job history or whatever the area might be, just understand that where you see failure, God sees a future. And so for Peter, the rock, he begins to talk about some other rocks. And he says in verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone. Now this is the first reference that he uses about rocks. And the living stone is Jesus. And he's going to tell us about uh, Jesus using two passages from Isaiah and one from Psalms. So it's Isaiah 8, Isaiah 28, and Psalms 118. So he's kind of taking Old Testament passages that he was familiar with. Maybe some of his listeners might be familiar with them, but he's quoting them and applying them and explaining them. So these Old Testament writers use the idea of a stone in referring to a Messiah who is going to come. And so, if you were Jewish, you remembered that the Messiah was called a stone. And then Peter changes this and he adds the adjective living to it. Because stones aren't usually alive, right? Stones are dead, inanimate, they just sit there. But if you remember, two weeks ago we talked about living hope, which Peter used to refer to Jesus. 
And when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, he said, I have living water for you. So almost any time in the New Testament where you see living attached to a word that's usually not alive, we're talking about Jesus. So Peter says this living stone is Jesus, the Messiah that was prophesied long ago. Remember in chapter 1 that Peter has referred to Jesus as the living hope, and now he's kind of extending this. He's saying he's not just living hope, he's a living stone. There's a solid foundation. He's tough. He stands up under pressure. He's impervious to attack, but he's not hard or crushing or cold or indifferent. He's living. He's moving. He's active. He's responsive. And it's actually in him that you will find eternal life. You may know the story of Moses leading the people of Israel in the wilderness, and they're crying out because they're thirsty, and they feel like they're dying, and God gives them water out of a rock. Peter uses this idea of a rock that is alive, that fuels this flow of eternal life. So Jesus is this living stone, rejected by humanity, not just his own Jewish religious leaders who should have recognized him when he walked the earth, not just the Romans who ruled Palestine and authorized the crucifixion of Jesus, but also by people over thousands of years, humanity, human beings like you and me who have rejected Jesus, and said, yeah, I don't buy it. Yeah, that's my, kind of an interesting story, but I don't need it. I'm moving on. I'm going to do my own life. And yet, in spite of humanity's response, rejection, the living stone was chosen by God and is precious to Him. God chose Jesus before the foundation of the world to be the Savior for all mankind, to step into our place and pay the price for our rebellion against God and to satisfy the debt that we owed. So Jesus is chosen and very precious to God the Father. He's the living stone that Peter refers to. All right. So just a few verses later, there's another stone mentioned, and this is living stones. So verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built. So these living stones are those who follow Jesus. And the only difference in the original language between those two words, living stone and living stones, one is singular, one is plural. In the New International Version that's up here on the screen, they capitalize the S in the living stone to help us understand that's a proper name. That's Jesus we're talking about. But in the Greek, it's the same exact words. Same thing. So we're supposed to be Really, kind of the same thing like the living stone. We're supposed to reflect his nature, his character. Maybe we're not the same size as the living stone, but we're supposed to be little living stones. We're supposed to be similar. We're supposed to resemble him. The word that Peter uses for stone, by the way, in this passage is different than the word that Jesus used in calling him the rock. So Peter is just this huge chunk of rock that you would find in a field or on a mountain or down in the bottom of a ravine. There's nothing done to it. Where this word that he uses for stone, it's a stone that has been shaped or chiseled or broken off or formed or polished or chiseled in some way fashioned for a specific practical use. So it's not just a rock that's sitting out in the field someplace. It is a stone. Maybe it's a millstone or a grinding stone or something useful in construction. You may have heard the phrase, heart of stone. That comes out of the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, where God says to his people, he would remove their heart of stone and replace it 
with a heart of flesh. So flesh is the opposite of stone. This is kind of the same idea. Even though we don't think of stones as living, Peter is saying, you're supposed to be living as well and enduring. And the living stone animates us. He offers us new life, an abundant life. He introduces us to eternal life that starts here and now but lasts forever. And the reason that Peter talks about the living stone and living stones is what we find in the next verse. It's because he's using a construction analogy. And so now he's talking about these living stones being built into a spiritual house. So these are stones that are being fitted together in just the right configuration and relationship to each other in an enduring, solid, and substantial way. These are all kinds of different stones, different shapes, different sizes, different textures, different colors. They may be from different parts of the world, and God, the builder, is putting them together in a way that they add up to something none of them could be on their own. It's God who conceives of and plans out and actually does the work of building the spiritual house, but there is the sense in which living stones would need to cooperate with the builder. If one rock is kind of put in this place and he looks and goes, ah, I don't like that person and the stone leaves, then the wall is weaker, right? I mean, it doesn't work. You've got to have every stone in its place. And if the builder decides, I want this stone that way or this way, that's the builder's prerogative. The reality is, though, when a builder starts chiseling on us, kind of taking off an odd protrusion that keeps us from fitting well with others, it might not feel so good. But Peter, I think, would say to the living stones, you don't do the building, but you can choose to cooperate with the builder. You can be receptive to the placement and the role and the shaping that he has for you. It's not just about you. It's about what he is building. And if you're not there, if you don't share the load, then the stones around you have a more difficult time. Peter is saying to us, you were designed and fitted by God to be an integral part of a spiritual house. Now, interestingly, that's what he's saying. It's a house, but it has a spiritual purpose. He could have said, you're being built into a temple. I mean, that was where in the Old Testament they worshipped God. That's where a good Jew would go to worship God in the temple. But Peter here is aiming for something higher than a temple. He's talking about a spiritual house, a place that is built out of living stones. And a house is supposed to provide hospitality and warmth and shelter and protection, right? It's not just a place where God is worshipped. This house is spiritual. But it's also a place where people who don't know God might be able to connect with Him. It's a residence designed and built for God's glory. It's a place where God and His people can dwell and entertain those who are far from God. What's the house for? It's to be a holy priesthood. Now, in the history of Israel, there was a time when the Levites were chosen as the tribe of Israel that had the priestly duties. But long before that, the whole people of God were called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, according to Exodus chapter 19. So holy means set apart for God's purposes, and priests were the ones that did the work of God. But the work they did was they interceded for the people who were far from God. They would pray for, they would make sacrifices for, they would serve in the temple, and then they would go and try to meet the needs of the people as well. They would teach those who didn't know about God. 
So we're supposed to be the go-betweens, the intermediaries between God and mankind. That's the role of the church as we are a spiritual house being built up into a holy priesthood. So we want to be a welcoming place for God and his people and his guests. And these holy priests are offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter doesn't give us any specifics on what those spiritual sacrifices are, but he's definitely using this as a metaphor. He's not intending us for us to cut up an animal or do a grain offering or burn something on a fire. He's talking about probably something along the lines of a Hosea 6.6, where God says, I desire and delight in faithfulness rather than sacrifice. And I want my people to know me personally more than I want their burnt offerings. Psalm 50 talks about the God-honoring sacrifices in terms of honest prayer, being authentic before God, living with gratitude and having a heart that is open to God's promptings. And David in Psalm 51 says, God, the sacrifice I'm going to offer you is a tender heart, a yielding spirit. So Peter is saying, if we're going to be priest offering sacrifices, then we live God-honoring lives, not just among other church people, but also before our friends and our neighbors who may not know God at all. He's talking about both our inner worship and our outer living brought together and combined in a way that is holy and God-honoring and points people to Christ. Recently, a British furniture company that's just getting started brought together a bunch of kids and a graphic artist because they wanted their designers to think with unbridled creativity. So they had the kids come in, and this uh, animator, this illustrator would ask them questions, try to, they'd make little sketches and stuff, and they'd bring them to life. And they wanted their designers just to observe this process so they could learn, again, what it means to have the creativity of a child. So they came up with something that looks like this. So Charlie, who's five, said, you know, if you have a house, it needs to have mechanical legs so that when your dad gets transferred and you move, you can just move your house with you. That would be awesome. Or the next one, Antoni came up with an eco-friendly pyramid-shaped home. If you notice, it has solar panels on the top, and then it's got a row of glass around so you can see what's going on. The doors in the front slide, and you can just see up on the third floor, that is a opening for your hovercraft to land. So just in case you're looking for some ideas for a new house, they get that as adults we look at things and say, well, that's stupid, you can't do it that way. But what if we could look with the possibilities and the creativity that Peter is talking about here? What if we could imagine a house that's built out of living stones, that's flexible, that's pliant, that moves, that lives, that breathes, that responds when people are in need, that offers hospitality, that offers a welcome and safe place, that protects people who are under siege. Peter is asking us to think about that kind of house and to be that kind of spiritual house. Now, if we read further in this passage, we learn about yet one more kind of stone, and this is a stone laid in Zion. And now Peter quotes these passages from Isaiah and Psalm. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion. Zion was the place of the people of Israel. So I'm laying a stone in the land of my people, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. 
Now, do you who believe this stone is precious? Peter first talks about this in terms of people who believe. This is one category where he's analyzing these Old Testament passages. And now he's going to talk about unbelievers. That's the other category of people that are talked about in this passage. But to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So we got to think about this. The stone laid in Zion is the Messiah. It's Jesus. We know that now looking back. It wasn't by accident or happenstance. He was chosen by God to be this precious cornerstone. God values him and treasured him. So in spite of being rejected by humanity, he is precious. And the cornerstone, we don't think of it this way because this is not how buildings are built, but the cornerstone was the first stone laid. And it was a stone that had a very clearly defined angle to it because it set up the angles for everything else. It located the structure. If you put the cornerstone in the wrong place, the house was in the wrong place, right? So it established where the structure was supposed to be built, and everything else had to align with the cornerstone for it all to come together. So the cornerstone was incredibly important, both in terms of location and alignment with the other elements of the building. So Peter says, whoever trusts in him, the living stone, the stone laid in Zion, they will not be put to shame. Ultimately, they will be vindicated when they stand before God at the last day because they have put their trust in Jesus not in their own good works, not in their own awesomeness. They have trusted Jesus as the leader and forgiver of their life. So if we've put him at the center of our life and we've aligned our lives with his purposes, there is no condemnation for us. But then Peter goes on and he relates this to those who do not believe. And to those who do not believe, he's still the cornerstone. That's interesting. Wait, they don't believe it. Yeah, well, that doesn't change the fact. He is still the cornerstone. You can deny it. And in fact, the word which says those who do not believe, it's like those who disallow. So it's even stronger than not believing it. It's they're going like, no, no, that's not possible. I don't believe I need a Savior. I don't allow for Jesus claiming to be the Son of God. So to those who disallow, He is still the cornerstone. It's also a stone that causes to stumble. That same cornerstone is actually an impediment to those people who don't believe. They stumble. He is awkward, hard for them to navigate around. And when they get to Jesus and his claims of being the Messiah, it throws them off their stride. They lose their balance. This is not a positive. You get this, right? A stumbling stone is not a good thing. Even though if you stumble over a stone, you might go, oh, I need to pay more attention to where I'm walking. Or I need to slow down because I'm on rough terrain. I may be in a difficult situation. So this is not a good thing. It's a stone that causes people to stumble. And beyond that, Jesus is also a rock that makes them fall. This is much more serious than just stumbling, right? This is hitting the deck. This is getting bruised or broken. There's a longer, more serious impact and then Peter says they stumble because they disobey the message of Jesus. They disobey the message of Jesus. They, they don't want to apply it to their life. And then finally, those who reject Jesus are destined to stumble. They're destined. That's the end point for them. If you reject Jesus, if you reject his teaching, you will stumble. 
That's just, that's the reality. And that's the end point. Picture a a tall tree, and you've got an eight-year-old kid, a 10-year-old kid who's pretty gutsy, and he climbs up the tree, and he gets to the first branch, like, that wasn't that hard. The next set of branches is not that much farther. I'm going to go a little higher. I'm going to go a little higher. I'm going to go a little higher. Well, an eight or 10-year-old kid may not understand what we would call the law of gravity, but it still applies to them, right? They may not understand the physics of moving out on a branch, that once a branch goes from four inches to two inches to one inch, that their 60-pound weight may not have the same level of support, right? They don't understand all of the biology and the physics and everything else that goes into holding them up. They're just having a good time. But that does not mean those immutable laws don't apply to them. And most of us, as kids, fell out of a tree and learned a very difficult reality. But it was helpful to understand that some things apply to me, even though I can say, you're not the boss of me, gravity, okay? Well, this is the same point Peter is making, is you can reject Jesus, but he is still the cornerstone. And if you reject him, he becomes the stumbling stone and the rock that makes you fall. So for us who are followers of Jesus, we need to understand, I mean, many of us have people in our own lives who we love, we care about. We work with them, they're our neighbors, they're maybe in our own family, and to them, this whole idea of Jesus, that's very hard for them to handle. They're like, I don't want to go to church with you, that's just weird. You guys are like creepy. Okay, understand, they're not being mean. This is just where they're coming from. This is hard for them to accept. So maybe we need to get better at explaining to them what God is doing in our life. How is he changing us? How is he straightening us out, reorienting us? We need to love and serve them and build relationships with them so that maybe one day we get to talk to them about what Jesus could do in their life. I have a feeling that it's all too easy for us just to go like, saw you stumble. Well, that's not really what our job is. Our job is to try to help them not to stumble, right? Because we know who the cornerstone is. So I'm going to ask you if you would bow your heads and I want to just have some time for us to pray. And then I'm going to close this, and we've got a couple of announcements, and then we'll be headed home. But I want you just to spend a little time listening and see if God has anything to say to you this morning. Listen for his voice in the silence. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would have the freedom to move in our life. Thank you for being our cornerstone, the marker for what we're supposed to be, for for how we're supposed to align our lives. And I pray for our church that we would allow you, Heavenly Father, to build us into the spiritual house that you've called us to be. Help us to willingly cooperate with your work in our lives, the way that you want to shape us and challenge us and change us. May we become a spiritual house that honors you and loves and serves the people around us and welcomes them and points them in your direction. And we pray for those in our lives who right now are rejecting you. They don't see you as a foundation stone. They see you as a stumbling block. I pray that you would open their eyes and that you would make us useful in your hands. Even though we don't know what to say or when to speak up. Help us to trust you 
and to love and serve and share as you give us opportunity. We want you to have all the honor and glory, Lord Jesus. So we pray in your name. Amen. And so we hope you enjoy your Sunday, that you get to say hey to a few people before you head out. God bless you and go in peace. Go in peace. Have a great Sunday.